Let me pray for us, um, and then we're going we're gonna to get this. Father, I do pray that you would come and be with us, that you would send uh, your Holy Spirit to um, help make sense of this passage for us. But more than that, Lord, we don't want it to just be an intellectual exercise. We want for your Spirit to come and apply it to us. Uh, and I pray that our hearts would be changed, that we would see Jesus to be more beautiful and believable than we ever have before. And so we ask that in his name. Amen. Uh, before I get started, I had a friend named uh, Brian Habig, and he preached a message on this passage a few years ago. And I listened to it, and it was really good. Um, and so I just kind of, full disclosure, a lot of these thoughts, especially toward the end, uh, are his. But um, I think they're particularly relevant for us here in college. So um, when I was in 7th, 8th, ninth grade, I was what we call a late bloomer. Late bloomer. Didn't get to puberty until ninth grade, which was pretty terrible. Um, so I had a really high-pitched voice, didn't have hair on my legs and all that stuff. And uh, that meant, this is kind of awkward, this is fun. Um, that meant that I was the most insecure uh, person in Duncan, America, for those three years. Because all my friends were like going through puberty and their voices are changing and mine's not. And uh, it was terrible. It was awful and I got made fun of and all sorts of other things. We can laugh and cry about it later. Um, but I tell you what, in ninth grade, the magic happened, and it was awesome, except your voice is changing. It's not changed, it's changing. And so there's that in-between time that it wasn't awesome, and then acne happened and continued to happen until I was 24. So cheer up, those of you, you may only have six or eight more years left. Um, here's the thing, I, I thought that it was going to get better, but in some ways it got worse. There's another story. Uh, a couple years ago, we had a, a woman come to campus named Rosaria Butterfield, and um, she writes a book called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And in that book, she talks about uh, her conversion experience to Christianity, which uh, I'll leave the story to you in the book. It's, um, it, it's wild. And as she talks about it, um, she became a Christian after she was in the process of writing a book against Christianity. It essentially was why the religious right, or why kind of the conservative political religious movement thing, hates the LGBT community. She was part of that community, and she was writing as someone um, who just had noticed just the vitriol against that group. And in the middle of that research, she read the Bible seven times. How are you doing? Um, seven times in two years. And as she tells it, the story of the Bible uh, grew inside of her and began to take over her story. That she saw that story as more true than her own life narrative. And she became a Christian. And the way that she describes her becoming a Christian was this. She says it was a train wreck. It was a train wreck. And the way that we typically think about someone's testimony is that, you know, the train wreck was beforehand... And then they come to Jesus or profess faith or get baptized or whatever that thing is. And then their life turns out good. And it's like this up, uphill uh, journey until we die or something. She says it was a train wreck. And it instantly her life fell apart. She lost her whole community. Her world essentially came crashing down. She said, I, I very much felt the benefits of Christ. But everything around me was in shambles. You know, John in this passage in Revelation 12 makes sense of why that is. He makes sense of why um, when we think that uh, becoming a Christian will make our lives better and then all of a sudden we'll have this joy that's inexpressible and unending, why that's not always the case. We may get it in glimpses. 
A little bit here, a little bit there, sometimes in stretches. But friends, this passage is showing us that there is a war at work in this world. And it is a war for your soul. And it is very real and it is very powerful. And the reason it is real and powerful is that there is a real enemy. And he hates you. And he hates Jesus and he hates the church. We're going to read about it right now. Revelation 12, beginning in verse 1. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, war arose in heaven. Let me hit pause real quick. Um, this, this passage is not three different stories. It's the same story seen from three different angles. Okay, so this is what we're about to read. is kind of a retelling of what we just read. Verse 7 again. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Verse 13 is the third kind of iteration of this. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is God's word. This passage is, um, as as you see right there, it's chock full of images. And the images tell us about a great war. And look, y'all, if we're ever going to understand the war, if we're ever going to understand what's happening, we have to break this down into three things. The first is we have to look at the people in the war. The people in the war, the people of the war. The second thing we need to see is the outcome of the war. And thirdly, we have to see the carnage from the war. Okay, so 
Let's look at this first one, the people of the war. I'm just going to kind of give this to us in teaching format just so we can get the actors on the stage and then see what happens. So there's three main people on uh, the stage of this war. It's pretty easy to identify. You've got a woman, a dragon, and a child. A woman, a dragon, and a child. And something very interesting you see, look at verse 1 and verse 3. Verse 1, it says, a sign appeared in heaven, a woman. It goes on to talk about the woman. Again, verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great dragon. Now notice that when he goes to introduce the child, it doesn't say another sign. It says there's a child. We'll talk about why that is in just a second. So, what, is it, what does it mean when John says there was a sign, and then a woman, and then a dragon? Think about what a sign is. If you go out here to uh, 11th Street and you're coming into TU right there at the top of the, at the new U, there's the big wood, uh, not wood, big stone sign that says the University of Tulsa. It's surrounded by, right now it's surrounded by dead flowers. Usually it has pretty flowers. Can't believe they didn't change those for Tulsa time. Uh, anyway, uh, but that sign is not saying this is the University of Tulsa right here in this sign. It's doing what? It's pointing to a reality beyond itself. It's saying on the other side of this gate lies the University of Tulsa. That's what signs do. They point to a reality beyond themselves. And so right there, let's talk about the woman. John says there's a woman, a sign, a woman. So what, the question is, what is this woman referring to? To what is she pointing? Several uh, things that she points to. First is this. She points to the people of God from before when Jesus came, when Jesus came, and after Jesus came. How do we know that? The first thing right there, the people of God before Jesus came, a.k.a. the nation of Israel. If you look at the woman and kind of how she's described here, it says that she is clothed with the sun and she's got her feet on the moon and she has a crown with 12 stars in it. And we're thinking that's, that's crazy and that's terrifying what's happening. That image is straight out of Genesis 37, verse 9. Uh, in Genesis 37, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, is being described. And Joseph is describing a dream that he had. Okay? And in his dream, it said that the sun and the moon and the, 12 star, and the 11 stars bowed down to him. And what we later learned from that dream is that the sun is Joseph's mother. The moon is Joseph's father. And the 11 stars that are bowing down to him are his brothers. So it's a very provocative dream because Joseph is the youngest of these brothers. And he's looking at all his older brothers and his parents. He's saying, you all are going to be bowing down to me. Okay? So why does that get picked up in Revelation? Because Joseph, along with his 11 brothers, constitute the people of Israel. This is God's people in the Old Testament represented right there through this picture. And so this kind of image we have of this woman and the moon and the stars is inclusive of God's people through the Old Testament. It's the nation of Israel. Um, Another way we know this in the Old Testament is Isaiah 26 and Isaiah 66. I'm not going to read them, but in those verses, God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, are referred to in the feminine. They're called her and herself. And that is not uncommon in the Bible. It's actually throughout the Bible. I just picked those two places as a reference. 
But even in the New Testament, we see that Jesus, um, I'm sorry, that Paul talks about Jesus' relationship to his church as a bride. It's that feminine thing again. Okay, so the people of God before Jesus, also, it literally is referring to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because in this narrative, in this story, the woman is giving birth to a child. And we go on to see uh, amazing things about the child, that he's the, the ruler of the world, which is Jesus in this. Okay, so it's Mary, but it's also the people of God after Jesus, the church. How do we know this? Look down uh, with me in verse 17. It says, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who is that? Well, verse 6 also says that the woman and her offspring are in the wilderness for the same period of time, 1,260 days. Look, that 1,260 days, is that's three and a half years. Okay, in Revelation, we've been talking about the number seven is this time, it's this uh, uh, denoter of completion. It's a number of completion. So three and a half years is half of seven years. You're welcome. Uh, it's half a time. It's half the fullness of time. And the picture is that these, this woman and her offspring, the, the verse 17, those who keep the commandments, that they are going to be on the earth for half a time. So we have the Old Testament people for kind of half a time. We have the New Testament people for half a time. The woman is the people of God throughout history. The dragon. Who's the dragon? Verses 3 and 4. Um, so if the dragon is a sign, what does he or it point to? Let's uh, put the verses up right there. I didn't write them down. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Good grief, what is happening? Head, the head, the picture of a head in the Bible, sometimes it just means head. Uh, sometimes it means authority. This dragon has seven heads. He is a very authoritative uh, figure. In some sense, he has complete authority. And if it weren't for God, he would have utter and total authority. But we'll learn about that in just a minute. He has ten horns. What are horns? They're a symbol of power. This dragon is utterly powerful. Completely powerful over this world. Seven diadems. A diadem is symbolic of wealth. It's a jewel. It's, a, it's jewelry. This, this dragon is wealthy. He's influential. He can do things with his, uh, with his wealth. We know how power works. We know how wealth works. He gets things done. This dragon gets things done. So what is the dragon? This one we don't even have to guess on. Verse 9, John tells us. The great dragon is thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. So the dragon's Satan. But before we move on, what does John say about him right there? Look back at verse 9. He says, that ancient serpent. Where have we heard that before? Way back in the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, God had created the world that was perfect. And he put man in the world, and it was perfect. And God said, here's this perfect world, and, and you in this perfect relationship. Go enjoy the world, and cultivate it, and make it into a city, and, and have sex, and make babies, and all this good stuff. And it's going to be awesome. Just don't do that one thing. And a serpent shows up and deceives them. And says, no, you don't want to follow God. You don't want to do what he says. You want to be your own God, don't you? 
He's withholding good from you. If you go and do this, you'll have all the world and its goodness for yourself. Friends, the serpent that shows up in Revelation 12 is the serpent that we've known all along. He's Satan. He's the devil. We're going to see he's the deceiver and he's really good at it. So that's who the dragon is. He's real. The Bible has no, it's not mythology, right? Satan is not the yin and the yang to God. It's not the evil force and the light force. Satan is a real being in the Bible. Jesus does battle with him in the wilderness. Jesus has several encounters with Satan. It's not mythological. The Bible sees Satan as a real presence. The third person we see is the child. As I mentioned, John does not use the word sign when speaking about the child. Why is that? Because the child does not point to any any sort of reality beyond himself. He is the reality. He is the reality. This child is Jesus, the Messiah. Where do we see that in the passage? Verse 5. It says that he is the one who is to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That quote is from Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2 is what uh, theologians and people call a messianic psalm. And that just means that it's foreshadowing the Messiah who was going to come. And Psalm 2 talks all about this Messiah and how he would rule over the world with a rod of iron. Now a rod was a shepherd's rod. It was a picture of the, the staff that a shepherd would tend the sheep with and keep them in line and all of this stuff. So it's a tender kind of, uh, actually it wasn't tender, shepherds beat the sheep, um, but it's nicer to talk about tenderness. Um, so uh, it's a rod of iron, it's a strong rod. It, gets, it accomplishes what it sets out to do. Interestingly and not coincidentally, Jesus in John 10 says, I'm the good shepherd. I take care of my sheep. My sheep know my name and they follow me. Jesus takes on to himself that, that prophecy from Psalm 2. He is the one who would rule with a rod of iron. Another reason we know this is Jesus is because the dragon tries to kill this child. When does he do that? As soon as he's born. The dragon is trying to kill this child. Now, um, we don't often talk about this at Christmas time because it's not very fun. But um, during Christmas, sorry, during, um, let me get the child up there, yeah. Uh, during, right before Jesus was born, Herod, King Herod the Great, had heard that there was going to be born a king of the Jews. And so what did Herod do? He sent out a decree that any child two years old and younger should be killed. Should be killed. So, is Herod Satan? Not necessarily. Satan uses all kinds of peoples toward his ends throughout history. And I, I'm going to stop short of making this a big political thing because who knows? People have tried to go that, that route and it gets weird and crazy pretty quick. Um, all this to say, Satan uses all kinds of means to try to kill not only this child, as we're going to see the child's followers in just a moment. Um, lastly, we see that he is caught up to God and to his throne. This is talking about Jesus' ascension after his resurrection. Okay, those are the people of the war. What about the outcome of the war? The outcome. Now, you may think it's strange for me to uh, jump forward to the outcome and not talk about the battle just yet. But I'm going to suggest that in order to understand kind of the battle and what we're experiencing, you have to know how this ends. Because if you don't know how it ends, the battle's not going to make sense. But we see the outcome right here pretty clearly. Uh, John picks up 
uh, the war from the perspective of heaven in verses 7 through 10. You can look down at them in front of you. I'm not going to reread them. But what we see is that this war is won from the heavenly perspective is won in favor of Michael the archangel. Michael has been the angel that kind of represents God's people throughout scripture. And he wins. How? How does Michael win from the perspective of heaven? By something that happens on the earth. There's an event that happens on the earth that causes the victory in the spiritual reality of heaven. What is that event? The birth of the child. It's the birth of the child. Listen in Matthew chapter 1. Listen to how the angel of the Lord came and told Joseph, Jesus' dad, what his son was going to be. Matthew one twenty one says, about Mary, says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus' very name means the Lord saves. And so when Jesus was born, game on is what that meant. The birth of Jesus spells victory in heaven. The life of Jesus and all of his perfect obedience to God spells victory in heaven. The, the healing of Jesus, his preaching ministry, his loving the outsiders, his, his desire for the outcast spells victory in heaven. The death of Jesus on the cross is victorious in heaven. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Friends, death is Satan's strongest tool. It's his strongest weapon. Jesus dies. The world seemingly is coming undone. Jesus rises from the dead and says, Satan, you've got nothing on me. The resurrection assures the victory. And then lastly, the ascension. You probably never thought about the ascension. Acts chapter 1 Uh, Luke picks up and says, and after Jesus was raised, he ascended back to heaven. What in the world does that mean? It says he ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God. Think about this. If you've ever seen a good like uh, medieval war movie or even like Braveheart or uh, anything like that, when a king is at battle, he is not sitting down resting. He's pacing He's out on his horse on the battlefield. He's he's checking with his commanders and getting input about the war, but he is not sitting down. Friends, Acts chapter 1 says that when Jesus ascends to heaven, he sits down. You want to know what that means? He won. When Jesus goes to the throne in heaven and sits down, he's saying, the victory is assured, it's complete. So the biggest question... It has to be screaming in our minds is, so why am I still suffering? Why does my life suck? Why is it still hard? If I'm on Jesus' side, which some of you are and some of you aren't. For those of you who are and you're following Jesus, you're like uh, Rosaria Butterfield. You're like, it feels a lot of days more like a train wreck than a celebration. So why is it still hard? Because there's carnage from that war. You see, um, the dragon received a mortal wound, but he's not yet dead. He's ticked off. And, And before Jesus comes back again, that dragon is out to destroy 
everything and everyone that it can. Think of it this way. I'm not really a hunter at all. I didn't grow up hunting. My dad wasn't a hunter. We're a a lover family. We love things. But um, soon after I met Sarah and we were married, uh, we went went down to Louisiana and we go down to Louisiana a fair bit. And they hunt down there a lot. Like if it's alive, it's going to be dead at some point soon. Um, And so uh, I asked Sarah's dad to take me hunting. And uh, he didn't, which I'm still mad at him for. But he uh, got a pastor in town to take me hunting. So the pastor took me out to some land, and we hunted illegally because I didn't have a hunting license. Go figure. Uh, But he set me up for the day, and he said, okay, here's how this is going to work. You're going to sit right here by this tree, and here's your gun. And I knew how to use guns and stuff. Um, He said, if you see a deer and you shoot it, just chill out. Right? Don't go freak out. Um, certainly don't go try to find it right away. You need to let that deer run out. You need to let it bleed out. And you need to let it die before you get even close to it. Why is that? If you know anything about hunting, you know anything about uh, something that has been shot or injured or anything, particularly animals. If you get close to them and they're hurting... They are going to do everything they can to protect themselves. They are going to thrash about. They'll try to jump up and run away. They will come at you. They will charge at you. And depending on what kind of animal it is, that can be very bad. Friends, Satan has received a death wound. But he's still alive. And he's still thrashing. And he knows that he didn't get the child. He knows that Jesus won. So he's coming after what Jesus loves the most. His people. The dragon is coming after the woman. Remember, the woman is the people of God. So the dragon is now coming after her. Satan knows the gospel. Do you know that? Satan believes the gospel, actually. He knows that he's defeated. He knows that Jesus won. And it's because he believes the gospel that he is enraged. And that is why things are so bad. That is why your life is so hard. Look at verse 13. It says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. There it is. Verse 17 again. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So if you are here tonight and you are professing to be a Christian, again, I know that's not some of you, um, Listen in from the outside. Um, If you are here and you are professing to be a Christian, Satan is trying to ravage your life. He is on a rampage, and he's doing that in two primary ways. The first way is that he's accusing you. Look at verse 11. Sorry, verse 10. It says that he's accuser. He's the accuser, and he accuses day and night. See if these have ever sounded familiar to you. Uh, oh, you're going to call yourself a Christian after what you did last weekend? Okay. You know you're lonely, right? That's because you're boring. You want to talk about up uh, to your friend about anxiety and how God has given you some peace in that? What about yesterday when you were curled up on your bed and you couldn't move? You tell everyone how hard you work, how busy you are. 
But I know how much time you spent watching Netflix last weekend and not doing your homework. You'll always be a procrastinator. You'll never amount to anything. Why is it that every time you're in a relationship, you go too far? You're a whore. You want to be on ministry team? Are you kidding? Who do you think you are? Remember when you watched four hours of porn this morning? Have fun at RUF. Why are you eating that? You're not as pretty as she is. You'll never be. Why would you drink and then let him take advantage of you? That's your fault, you know. There's a reason why you haven't gotten that internship. All the people around you are so much smarter than you are. Might as well just tell your parents you're coming home this summer. These accusations are an everyday reality for you if you're in Christ. They are the voices you hear. And Satan wants you to think that you are a nobody. And he wants you to believe that you are the worst. And friends, some of you have believed that lie. And it's the reason why you thought about killing yourself. It's the reason why you're so depressed. It's the reason why you don't want to come back to you. It's the reason why you don't leave your room. Satan is an accuser. He says things that aren't true. He tries to ravage your world. And he's good at it. He wants you to isolate yourself from the Christian community and from things like RUF and church and Bible studies and Bible reading. He wants to keep you from any place where you might hear another message. The gospel. Where you might encounter someone else who tries to speak dignity into your life. He is trying everything he can to keep you away from that. You have to know that. He's not just an accuser, he's a deceiver. Verse 9, he's called the deceiver of the whole world. And we're tempted, when we think about Satan, we're tempted to think that it's this uh, kind of full frontal assault, that he's going to roll up on the scene in Harley Davidson in black leather with red eyes and long hair. He's like, I'm here, you're going to worship me now. Pretty good. <laughs> Friends, um, it's a little bit more like this scene out of the screw tape letters. I'm going to summarize it. It says, you know what? That thing you talk about, that thing you're being taught, that Jesus is king of heaven and earth, that Jesus loves so much the world that he came to redeem it, that's true. And it's the work of God's people to go show that to the world. You need to show that to your hall, and you need to show that to your house, and you need to talk about it and tell all the people around you. That's so important. In fact, it is so important that you need to go have a good dinner, and you need to go get a good night's rest, and you need to do that tomorrow. It sounds so good. It's so many truths stringed together with a little lie at the end. Just wait. Just wait a little bit longer. Get ready for it, and then the opportunity will be right. Friends, that's deceit. It's that voice which says, it's just a homework set. It'll be fine. You can copy the answer key. You can copy from your friend. 
All right, it's just a homework set, I get it, that's, that's true. It's not a test, it's not a midterm, it's not a project, it's not a, it's not a paper. It can be true things, but there's a lie in there, there's a hook. It's that voice that says it's just, it's just masturbation, it's not that big of a deal, it's not hurting anybody else. It's kind of believable. We believe that all the time. It's, it's just treasure. It's not like you're running for president. It's not going to take that much of your time. You'll, leave, you'll have plenty of other time to go make relationships and be friends with people. But what happens when it's the fourth treasure position you've taken? So what are our, what are our weapons against this stuff? What do we do with the accusations? They're in here. Do you see it? The weapons are in here. Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. We have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. What does this mean? This means that when Satan comes and whispers those lies to you and accuses you, you have to preach the gospel to yourself and you have to preach it to Satan. Think about it like this. In in, um, 2012, the movie Avengers came out. And there was a scene uh, where Tony Stark, who was Iron Man, um, uh, was talking to Loki. And they were there in this condo scene, and Tony Stark's pulling a dr- uh, pouring a drink. And uh, they're just kind of politely trash-talking each other. And Loki says what? I have an army. And Tony Stark looks at him and says, we have a Hulk. It's kind of a funny uh, scene. The tension diffuses. And uh, I'm not trying to be irreverent with this at all. But we have to apply that logic to what Satan does. Uh, When those things come, it says, how can you call yourself a Christian when this? Or how can you think you're going to go to heaven when that? And and whatever the predicate predicate of that sentence is, you are free to say this. We have a lamb. And I don't know what all you have in that file against me. But there's probably, there's more that's even not even in there yet. You don't know half the stuff that's gone through my mind in the last week. So yeah, that, that file is true. That and so many other things. But we have a lamb. And I'm thinking that if the blood of the lamb can cover the sins of the world, that he can take care of that file. Friends, if you are in Christ, you have a lamb. And we conquer through his blood because it covers our file. What about the deceit? John says the word of their testimony. Verse 17. Those who hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Look, if you sometimes wonder. uh, If you're on the right side of this. If this makes sense. That you're giving yourself to Jesus. And you're coming to RUF. And you're trying to live the Christian life. And sometimes you're wondering. Good grief. Is this worth it? How do we get through? How do, I, how do I persevere in this? John seems to think the testimonies matter. Why do they matter? Because John was a living testimony. He lived with Jesus. He's saying, he's like, I sat with him. I ate with him. I hugged him. I ran around with him. I watched him do miracles. I, 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 his mom adopted me essentially after the crucifixion. Like, I knew Jesus. Listen to me. And don't even listen to me. There's other people around that saw him too. Go listen to them. Tell the testimony. Listen to the true stories that have been told about him. So what do we do in 2017? 
We tell our testimony. We talk about how Jesus is alive in us. Not how we became a Christian when we were in second grade. We say, what does Jesus matter in my life right now? What in the world does he have to do with that thing you did last weekend? Tell your friends about it. We have to encourage each other. We have to sing the testimony. We have to read the testimony. We have to hear the testimony. Friends, we have the testimony. It's how we put to death the lies. And the testimony, the truth in that testimony is this. That if you are in Christ, you are in a war. And Satan hates you. And he wants to devour you. But the war has an end. And at the end is a life of peace and joy forever. That's what Jesus holds out to you. Is forever with him and his people in peace. It's worth fighting the battle. Let's pray.